Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, we find the next passage we're looking at in the mini-series under the greater series of the book of Colossians, verse 19, husband, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Again, we find a very abbreviated verse that Paul speaks now to husbands. Now, we mentioned last Sunday that marriage is complementary. Complement with an E, which means two things come together, two roles come together in such a way that it enhances and completes a picture that one without the other cannot complete. So as you look at these relationships in Colossians 3, for example, children to parents, we see the complementarianism there. Children come under the leadership of the parents and the training of the parents. And then servants to masters, or we could say employees to employers, there's, there's leadership, and then employees come under that leadership, and Paul will speak to that in this chapter. But he uses a word here you wouldn't expect when he speaks to husbands. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, and the complimentary word that you would expect is what? Husbands, lead your wives. That's not the word he used. He said, husbands, love your wives. Now, we could speculate as to why Paul did this, not only here, but also in Ephesians 5. Now, leadership is certainly part of it because in Ephesians 5, Paul would say to wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord because the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. So that surely means leadership. But then Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Lead her with love. And that's my title this morning. Husbands, lead her. Take the lead and lead her with love. So we're going to look at the love of Christ as the example as Paul points us to that throughout the Bible, but also in Ephesians 5. And we'll look at four ways in which we can see the love of Christ toward His bride and how we can try to model that through the power of the Spirit of God. Lead her with love. First of all, love seeks. Love seeks. Concerning Jesus, the songwriter wrote, From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her, and for her life He died. Love sought you out. Husbands, when you love your wives as Christ loved the church, you're loving her in the same manner, not with perfection, as Christ loves His bride. But you're loving her like, in the same manner, as Christ loved the church. And He sought her. He sought her. You can see this in the verb, love. There are two imperatives here. Love your wives and don't be bitter against them. Those are present imperative active voice verbs, be loving her and be not being bitter against her. So present tense means it keeps going. It keeps pursuing. Love keeps seeking your wife. Now what would you think if Jesus' love was not like that? In Colossians 1 we learned our prior condition, Paul would say, and you who were sometimes, you formerly were alienated and enemies in your minds through wicked works, it now hath 
Christ reconciled you. Now suppose that was the end of it. He brought you justification and then He leaves you alone. How often is our love like that for our wives? You sought her. You went hard after her. You bought her flowers. You opened the car door for her. You did all the acts of chivalry. You put your best foot forward. And then when she said, I do, slowly but surely, your love in a pursuing way began to diminish, began to draw cold, and maybe it's what it is today. Not as fervent, not as warm. Suppose Christ justified us, but then left us to our own. We find in Colossians 1, Yet now hath He reconciled us through the body of His flesh to present us to Himself. What's the implication there? He brought us justifying love, and He keeps pursuing us daily with His love. All the way till the day where Christ will bring us into His loving arms forever in eternity. So men, men that will be married, men that are married, the love of Christ is a pursuing love, and our love for our brides, our wives, is to be a pursuing love, a seeking love. A love, present tense, that keeps going, keeps pursuing, keeps going after her for her Good. The second part of that verb, it's imperative mood. It's a command. So love here is not optional. It's not based on how you feel on any given day. It's something that God has commanded you to keep doing every day. And so not being optional, it's something we're to pursue and keep going after. Because without love in your leadership, the Bible says our leadership is nothing. And we just read that, didn't we, in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul uses the preposition though five times concerning the church at Corinth. He says, though we speak with the tongues of men and angels and we don't have love, it's just irritating, like symbols clanging. It just jars you. Then the second though, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge and have not charity, and though, number three, I have all faith so that I could move mountains and have not charity, it profits me nothing. And though, number four, though I give all my goods to, to feed the poor, and though, number five, I give my body to be burned and I don't have love, it profits me nothing, I am nothing. In the Divine Mathematics, D.A. Carson says, five those minus one love equals what? Not four. Zero. Though you lead a project team at work successfully, and you don't have love, it's nothing. Though you run a Fortune 500 company, and it succeeds amazingly, and you don't have love in your leadership, it's nothing. Though you lead a sports team to a championship and you don't have love, it's nothing. Though, husbands, you lead your wives superbly and there's love is lacking, your, your leadership is zero, Jesus says. 
It has no value because leadership without love is going in the wrong direction. It's not Godward. It doesn't have the aroma of Christ in it. There is a kind of leadership when it lacks love is nothing but self-serving, self-seeking leadership, which the whole design to those under your leadership is to get you what you want. That's not the love of Christ. The love of Christ seeks the good of His bride, the church. It's present in love. He's under the imperative of His Father. And in His leadership, love permeated everything He did. Now we're talking about loving in the same manner. Not with perfection, because that's impossible. And then thirdly, this verb is active voice, which means you're doing the loving. Present tense, keep loving. Imperative mood. It's a command of God. And then active voice. It's not based on her inclining you to love or to lead. Certainly, sisters, as a help meet, you can remind husbands of that. You can encourage them. You can help them. But love takes the initiative. A leader doesn't wait for those under him to always prompt him to love. Love takes the initiative. Love is a present, imperative, active voice love, and it follows the love of Jesus Christ. Are you seeking the love of your bride, not her love for you, but are you seeking to love her in ways that model Jesus Christ? And then under this heading, love seeks the good of a wife in a way that is unconditional. Jesus' love for his bride is unconditional love. God's love for you is unconditional. What would that mean for you this morning if God's love for you was conditional? In other words, He's waiting on you to get to the place where you merit His love. Where you get to the place where your holiness, your, your pursuit of Him is such that now He's ready to love you. No, His love for you was from the foundation of the world. There were no conditions because there were no conditions you could meet. We see this again in Colossians 3.12 where Paul says, Put on therefore as the elect of God... Holy and beloved. The word beloved is the same word that Paul uses for husbands in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. You remember the word beloved concerning God's love for you is a perfect passive verb. Perfect meaning at some point in time in eternity past, which just means forever, right? How do you have a point in time in eternity? Forever, in the moment of eternity, God has always set His love on His people. The perfect tense, meaning that completed action, God is not going to redo that. He has forever set His love on His bride, on His son's bride, the one He has chosen. The ongoing result of that completed love is that it just keeps going. There's never going to be a time where God stops loving the people He has chosen for His bride or His Son, Jesus Christ. But it's a passive voice. Passive voice means you did nothing to merit the love. Passive means you're doing nothing, saying nothing, being nothing. He set His love on you unconditionally, independent of anything you are or might do because you were passive in the transaction. 
Now, the ongoing result of God's completed action in the past of eternity where He set His love on you and it keeps going, you keep being passive. Meaning what? There's still no reason that will ever be in you as the cause of God's love. Somebody says, well, God looked to see into the future that I would love Him first. Right? Or he looked to see that I would choose him or trust him. Well, faith and love are synonymous because if you trust him, you love him, right? So some people say, God looked down through eternity. He saw that you would love him. And then in response to your love, he loved you back. Then the cause of God's love would then be your love to him. 1 John 4.19 should forever settle that question. John says, we love him because... He first loved us. It doesn't say, God loved us because we first loved Him. And we initiated His love to us because we trusted, we loved Him first. That is a contradiction to that text. Likewise, husbands, your love to your wives is to be unconditional love. Because we're modeling the love of the Savior toward His bride. Now what are the implications of that? Your love is not based on her physical appearance. Now I recognize there's not a parallel here. Right? There were reasons that you set your love on your wife. Right? You said, wow. You know, you you love the way she talked, the way she looks, the the way her eyes sparkled, whatever it was to drew you to love your wife. But your love for her is to be unconditional. When she's not lovely on a day, your love keeps going. When she doesn't perform like you think she should, your love keeps going. Because your love for her is not based on law, it's based on grace. Law, love, says, when you break my rules, I'm going to punish you. When you keep my rules, I'm going to love you and be nice. Now, it may be God's rules, God's law, maybe your law, but a law-based relationship is based on the condition of keeping the law so that my love for you comes as a result of you performing according to either my man-made rules or even taking God's law and using it in a wrong way. No, it's unconditional. Imagine if God loved you on the basis of you keeping His law. We've all broken it. Right. Right? Not based on her appearance, not based on her performance, not based on how lovely she is on any given day. It's based on the love of Christ for you and the power the Holy Spirit supplies in being the kind of loving husband that God calls us to be. So brothers... Love is a pursuing, seeking kind of love in leading her with that love because Christ is a pursuing kind of Savior, isn't He? He came to seek and to save those that are lost. And now following His model in this covenant of marriage that you've entered into or that you will enter into, you take the lead in love and following the example of Christ and you're going to seek her independent of performance, loveliness, looks, or anything of the kind. Because we're modeling Christ. Number two, love not only takes the initiative as a leader, 
and is unconditional, love surrenders itself to the good of your wife. Love surrenders. Now, I'm going I'm to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 if you want to turn with me and see this where Peter is addressing husbands likewise in 1 Peter chapter 3 in the context of the suffering church, the church that was being persecuted. And here Peter says in verse 7 of 1 Peter 3, Likewise, ye husbands dwell with them, which means wives, according to knowledge. And then there are two participles that tells us what he means by knowledge. The first one is giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And the second one, and as being, second participle, heirs together the grace of life. And then the reason you want to do that, so that your prayers would not be cut off, frustrated, or hindered. Okay, so why does Peter say likewise? That means in the same manner as something that preceded it. And then in the next verse, in verse 9, he says, finally. So Peter's drawing it to conclusion a section that he began in verse 9 of being called out of the darkness into the marvelous light of Christ and living in a certain way that glorifies God in your lifestyle among the unsaved Gentiles or the unsaved people of the world. And then when he begins to get into the specifics, as we've noted before, as to what this lifestyle, this honest, excellent lifestyle would look like, he says what? Submit to the ordinances of man. Servants, submit to your bosses. Wives, submit your husbands, likewise husbands. But he doesn't use the word submit. And I think there's a reason he doesn't, because this surrender that the husband does, he is not called to leave the position of headship in so doing. So a husband is never told in the Bible to leave the role of taking the lead as head. Because we're, we're drawing our cue from Christ and following His example. But there's a likewise here that means in the same manner that these three groups, Christians, servants, and wives, are to submit. There's a way in which husbands surrender to their wives in this verse. So what would that be? It would be dwelling with them according to knowledge. Knowledge. So what we're surrendering to... In this relationship, we're surrendering our interest for the interest of our wives. Did not Christ surrender? Is there not a way in which Christ submitted himself to the interest of the church? In Philippians chapter 2, which Paul says, Let this mindset be in you. Look not every man on his own things or interests, but also on the things of others, their, their interests. Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. When your own interests are at the forefront, it leads to what? Strife and vainglory, contention and quarrel. When we're experiencing lowliness of mind, we esteem others, and here we're applying it to wives, and we're looking on the interest of others, in particular our wives, and this is the very mindset of Christ, because what did He do? He humbled himself and became submissive or obedient to death, even the death of cross. Jesus didn't leave his role of headship 
he submitted himself to the eternal interest of his bride, and he gave his own life. Husbands, likewise, submit your interest. Surrender your own personal interest for loving and going after the interest, the spiritual interest of your bride, your wife. Isn't that what it means to know something? And I think for, for a moment, men, if somebody said, I have a real interest in cars. I am very interested in cars. What would that mean? How would he express that? Well, he, know, he knows cars. He knows the makes and models of cars. He knows the standard options. He knows what can be added. He knows the engine. He knows the horsepower. He knows how long it takes to get to zero to 60. He knows cars because he's interested in cars. When you dwell with your wives according to knowledge, you have an interest in your wife that shows itself in these two ways. Giving honor as unto the weaker vessel. The word honor is the same word used for Jesus Christ in chapter 2. He's precious. He has value. So you're going to fix the value. Not an idolatrous value on your wife, but, but an appropriate value on her soul and her spirit. And then you surrender your interest, which is going to require all that, that busy time we have in doing interesting things. You're going to surrender that for the good of your bride to know her by giving honor as unto the weaker vessel. Now, what does that mean? Weaker, not in the sense of spiritually and intellectually, but there are two ways in which your wives are vulnerable. They are vulnerable physically, and there's a vulnerability emotionally, physically. You are giving your wife honor when you're not threatening and intimidating her with your size or your words. Because men, you're, you're stronger, you're larger. And God designed you that way to be a protector, not an intimidator, not a threatener. So she's made herself vulnerable to the leadership of your love because she's coming under it only to be threatened and to be intimidated by harshness or your strength. That does not honor your wife. So you know her and you're interested in her soul and so you give her honor as the weaker vessel but then emotionally, emotionally. Now, sisters, it may be just because you care a lot more than men that you're emotionally vulnerable. But your, your emotions are different than the emotions of men. And so you should take an interest in your wife's soul and knowing what discourages her what makes her afraid? What gives her anxiety? What makes her depressed? What discourages? What, what are the inner workings of those emotions? And you, and you know something about her and, and what those things are. And you're giving her honor because you're interested in her. Because if you're to lead with love, you need to know something about what makes her tick as she expresses herself to you. Wives are being bombarded every day in our society with the ideal woman in our society who looks a certain way, who has a certain kind of body, who has a career and is doing exciting, wonderful things. And how often our, 
Your friend's ready to tell you how you can live a really exciting life if you'll just do something different than being that mother that you're being. She is bombarded in our culture daily, emotionally. And so, husbands, we are to, to lead with love, taking interest, showing value to the weaker vessel. Now, how would you, how would you do that in particular? How would you show her you value her in these ways? Well, you would first show her your appreciation, right? You just tell her. If you started this week and you just threw out five or six things of how thankful you are to God about your wife, if she faints, you know that you haven't been doing that, right? Or she is shocked all over her face, we've got some work to do. You tell her, thank you for being the mother you are. Now, this is not expressing perfection or that there are no struggles or difficulties and, and, and sins in a husband or wife, but you're thanking God for her, how she manages her skill, her wisdom, her help to you, her love for you. You're, you're looking for ways to show gratitude, and then you tell her her value. Not in a flattering, unreal way where she can look through that because you're just after something, but because you genuinely thank God for her gifts and the way she's using them. You'll find something to be thankful for. Next, you want to praise her. Wait a minute, that, that sounds a little over the top unbiblical. How about Proverbs 31, 28? Her children also arise up and bless her, and also her husband. And he praises her. He commends her. Now you go read Proverbs 31, and that man has a lot to praise his wife for. He commends, he praises. He expresses his value by praising her. You know, that goes for children too, doesn't it? Do you praise your mother? Do you tell her? How thankful you are for her and the things she did for you that she has to tell you what she did. You don't even remember. See, a woman is to be praised, a virtuous woman, and it's the woman who's carrying out her function, her role as a godly wife and a mother. Not with perfection, not without sin, not without things that we wish we had done different, but on a pathway for the glory of Christ, doing what God calls a mother to do. So husbands, you're to appreciate, you're to praise and to admire her. Admire her. Give her admiration. See? Because the man who's interested in cars, does he not appreciate them? Does he not all the time talk about how he admires the features and the speed and the wonder of that car? Doesn't he praise that automobile that he takes such high interest in? And you will too, in a, a biblically appropriate way. You will praise her in an appropriate way by showing her value. And then as being heirs together of the grace of life. This is the second participle that Peter uses that explains what it means likewise to dwell with them according to knowledge as being heirs together of the grace of life. Now, the grace of life, I think, includes eternity because it's an inheritance. But you know, in eternity, you, you won't 
have the covenant of marriage in eternity. We, we know that from what Jesus said. You will not have the bond of marriage in eternity. So I think it includes here the, the grace of life today. You're heirs together of the eternal life that's coming, but today you're heirs together of the grace of God that comes to us in the covenant of marriage. It comes to each individual. But here in the context, it's the grace of life. What would be the implications? What does that mean? Well, this word is used, heir, it means a joint heir, a joint participant. It's used in Hebrews 11.9 concerning Abraham, where it says there, Abraham, he sojourned in a land of promise as in a strange country. He dwelt in tabernacles or tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Now, where was Sarah? In the same tents. The next verse, by faith, Sarah. Why doesn't it mention Sarah? Because the Bible is only tracing the patriarchal lineage through the husband. For example, Genesis 25 says what? Abraham begat Isaac. We know he didn't beget Isaac. We know that. If Sarah did that, it's just tracing lineage through the man, through the husband. Sarah is in the same tent. Sarah is of the same promise. How does Abraham lead his wife and Isaac and Jacob, all part of the same promise? How does he lead them as heirs together of the grace of life? Verse 10, Hebrews 11. Because he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's why he dwelt in tents. You just put up a tent and take it down. Because his home was not in this world. Husbands were leading with love in a surrendering way. As being joint heirs together, the aim of our leadership is not the temporary things that we can collect together in life. We will collect those things. We will have some of those things. But Abraham looked for a city that had solid foundations whose builder and maker is God. And we were looking for the same city by hoping in Christ. It will produce in our leadership a kind of love that is pointing our wife to the same thing we're looking after and our interest in our wives will be spiritual, not just physical. Not just physical. Now what are the implications of that? Well, think about if you were in a marriage where all you enjoyed in the marriage was what you could collect. When the marriage itself became the foundation, became the place of joy, rather than the city you're looking forward to. Now, there is enjoyment in marriage, but suppose that's it. The only joy you experience in marriage is physical, emotional, intellectually, and not spiritual. That all you're looking for in the marriage is what happens right here in the, in the tabernacles and not the city that's to come. What are the implications? What happens when you get old? As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, Remember now thy Creator in the days of our youth when the evil days are not yet there and, and the uh, days are not drawing nigh before they get here. 
when you have no pleasure in them. See, in old age, things start to happen when you have no more enjoyment in the things you used to have. And then he goes on to use metaphorical language, figurative language to describe the body deteriorating and breaking down. The eyes dim. The taste buds fade. The scent is diminishing. The bones are waxing feeble. The muscles are decaying. So all the enjoyment you had in marriage, physically, emotionally, and intellectually without spiritual, is gone. It's not there. Then the joy of marriage is gone. Because you weren't looking for a city that have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. See, all the enjoyment that we do experience physically, emotionally, and intellectually is a, an, an enjoyment that must be connected with the enjoyment of Christ so that when all that leaves, what's left? The enjoyment of Christ. I think about a man right now in Cincinnati whose wife has Alzheimer's. She doesn't know him. Every day, at lunch and dinner, he visits her. Every day. She can't live with him. She's under another group's care. She can't say, I love you. She can't remember the enjoying times of marriage. She can't say, thank you. She won't ask, how was your day? This man is making an investment with no return. Zero return. But yet he's still leading with love. How can he do that when there is literally no enjoyment at the present time in the relationship called marriage? What, what is there to enjoy? There is no physical enjoyment. There is no emotional enjoyment. There is no intellectual enjoyment. She doesn't communicate with him. It's the enjoyment of the city that's coming that moves him to keep going after his wife in a surrender. He sacrifices his own interest for the interest of his bride because the motivating power of his love is not his bride. When the marriage becomes an end in itself, then the end itself must supply the joy or it's no good. And we see that all over our culture. And what are men doing? They're not leading with love. They're checking out of marriage. So, brothers, we are to lead with love by surrendering our interest for the interest of our bride spiritually in those enjoyments we have in life together must come under the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ in Colossians 1. So when all that fades, what's left? The enjoyment of two people who love Jesus Christ and know they're about to enter into the realm of eternity forever. Amen. Number three, love sacrifices. The love of Christ was sacrificial wasn't it? He sacrificed everything for his bride. Ephesians 5 captures that. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. First, his sacrificial love was voluntary. He gave himself for it. 
In John 10, Jesus makes this clear when He says, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. They shall hear my voice, there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my Father love me. Why? Because I laid down my life that I may take it again. No man takes it from me. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. This commandment I received of my Father. Now there are two bookends in that passage. I must bring them, and I've been commanded to love. Now we've already noted, husbands, you've been commanded to love your wives. I ask you, how's that freedom? How's that voluntary? Do you feel like a volunteer, children, when your parents demand that you go clean your room? How is that freedom? How are you doing what you please, which is what the word freedom means, when you're under a must and a command? And husbands, you're under a command to sacrifice. How is that voluntary? How did Jesus volunteer for the job when God commanded it? And He used the word must. I must do it. Well, it's like two soldiers who've enlisted to go to battle and they both say, I must go fight. And they both say, I'm under a commandment from the general, the commander-in-chief to go fight. They both have a must and they both have a commandment. But the one soldier is under the must and command of the draft. Why must you go to war? Well, I have to. I didn't want to. I got this letter in the mail. You're the right age. You've got to go. So I must. I've been commanded. I'm going. And then there's the must of the soldier and the command of the soldier that volunteered for the job. And then you, you ask that soldier, well, why must you go? Why, 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 are, why must you obey that command? Because I love my country. I love her honor. I love this land. Now, let me ask you, in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the battle, which soldier is likely to be sustained? When you look back at the homeland and people are not glad you're fighting, the culture's in chaos, you're not motivated by the land anymore, although it's still free. What is going to sustain the soldier? And what soldier's likely to say, I've had it? See, the soldier that's drafted is likely going to leave. A soldier that loves is going to stay the course. When Jesus marched into Jerusalem, he was riding upon the colt, the foal of an ass, and people were spreading palm leaves before him, saying, The Messiah. Shortly, days later, they all were against him. What moved the Messiah to stay the course, even though his bride was at enmity with him and hated him? It wasn't the performance of his bride, it wasn't the loveliness of his bride. He volunteered out of his love for God the Father. That's why God loves him. He lays his life down that he may take it again. It means he gets it back on his own. If somebody says to you, I can take my own life, you'd say, well, yeah, you could. If somebody says, I can bring it back again, you would say, no, you're crazy. Either Jesus is a madman, crazy, he's not good, or he's God. Because he said, I'll bring it back myself, and he did so. He's God. So why does that mean the Father loves him? Because he's like the soldier that says, I'll do it for love of your glory, Father. I'll do it because I love your honor and your name. Amen. And I'll do it because I love the bride you've chosen for me. 
And so it's the delight and the joy that the Son has in the Father that moves him all the way through the cross because he had joy set in front of him and it was not the joy of his bride. Now truly and surely we have great joy in marriage. But if the joy is missing in a day because she's not so lovely, because she wasn't submissive as you think she should have been, what sustains the leadership is a sacrifice that's voluntary because of the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge. If one died for all, then all were dead. The love of Christ is what controls and constrains us. So the command externally to love your wives comes from an internal delight that says, I love God, so I'm moving out with love to my bride. Beloved, our sacrifice, and of course that verse applies in John 10 to all of us in the context we've called to love, honors God when it's not based on the performance of those we love, but based on the performance of Christ, the one who loves us. And then under this heading, he sacrifices by serving her. Now now look at Ephesians 5 again, and I'll read this after he says what this love looks like. He would say, husbands, love your wives. I'm in Ephesians 5, 25. Even as Christ also the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. Verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. All right. Notice the word nourish and cherish. How did the Lord serve the church with his love? He not only died sacrificially and voluntarily, he nourishes her and cherishes her. Both words speak of fostering something, encouraging something. Now, what are, you, what are you fostering? You're fostering her holiness. Her love to God is being strengthened. Robert Wells says in his book on Colossians, he poses this question. Should the measure of a husband's love for his wife be whether her devotion to the Lord Christ is strengthened and God's interest rather than her husband's For her life achieved? Answer, I think so. How do you know the measure of your love for your bride? When her devotion, not to you, but to Christ, is being strengthened. And when God's interest in her life are being achieved, not your own. And that's where we get off the mark so often, isn't it? We we want our interest to be achieved in our wives' lives, and so... Our leadership makes demands and does things because we want those interests to be fulfilled. But Jesus came and he served his bride for her best interest. And that was her sanctification, her holiness, and presenting her to himself. So what are the implications of that then? How would your service to your bride as a loving leader, leading her with love, how would that work out or look? 
Well, first of all, leading her spiritually would mean perhaps you read the Bible together and you pray together. Something that sounds so simple can be so hard, can't it? Time, schedules, busyness. See, what we have to remember that God has deposited this thing called sanctification right in the marriage, and it's mutual. It's mutual. So you both are being sanctified, and you're both occupying a role that's going to facilitate and encourage that sanctification. The wife is encouraging her husband as a help meet under that leadership. She encourages his sanctification because that's what he needs to lead properly. And the husband takes the lead spiritually in her sanctification. And so now, complementary, they do well and they enhance one another. And so what's happening? Read the Bible together. Share insights together. Go over the reflection questions together. And what's happening? You're now working through sanctification together. How do you think we're doing on that one thing that it was preached on Sunday? Well, I think we need some work there. How, how, how should we do that? Well, let's do this. What do you think? And so what's happening now, you're taking the initiative. It doesn't mean the wife can't say, do you think we ought to look at the reflection question? Yeah, thank you. Let's do that. I'm going to start taking the lead on that. She's your help me, Right? We're taking the lead in reading the Bible together and sharing insights. Okay. You're taking the lead. You're serving her holiness by making church life a priority. Right? How many times husbands don't take the lead in church life? In becoming a covenant member of a church? Which wife has to make a decision then, Right? When the will of the husband conflicts with the will of Christ, the will of Christ wins. But Christian husbands, we're to be taking the lead in making church a priority in the context where it fits with marriage and family, right? And then the service that takes place there. Husbands, encourage your wives. Lead her in that pathway. Because in the church life, what happens? Holiness is cultivated in church life. So you want to take the lead there. You're wanting to make sure she's able to connect with other sisters in the church, like a sister's meeting or a fellowship group, because that's where we're encouraging holiness. So you want to watch the kids so she can go to the women's meeting occasionally. You want to make sure she has a chance to connect, because you likely get those chances, maybe at work with other Christians, because there's no one there for you to watch, like children, or in other places. So when you come home, you want her to connect, so you're going to take the children. Or maybe it means in the sermon you're going to take the children out when they're being noisy and you're going to let her stay and listen to the sermon because you're, you're wanting to lead the way in cultivating and encouraging her holiness so that she's not distracted in her growth and hearing what God wants her to hear. Now these are just suggestions. You can run much further with that and come up with ways where we could serve our wives and leading them with love in such a way that we're nourishing, encouraging, fostering her devotion to Christ and fostering God's interest in your wife, not your own personal interest. And of course, when she is being holy, what will that mean? Your interests are being served, right? Maybe that's why Paul said... When you love your wife, you're loving yourself because that, that holiness comes back to you 
in all kinds of ways. And your holiness goes back to her in a way that produces joy in Christ so that God is magnified in this relationship called marriage. And then finally, Paul says not to be bitter against her. The word can mean frustrated, irritated, angry. And what would make us so bitter? Maybe when she tries to help us as a wife and you don't want the help, you get angry. Maybe you get angry because sometimes we lose sight of what marriage is and we think she ought to be serving my interest instead of God's and it makes us angry and irritated and we get bitter with them. Maybe it's because our love has become conditional based on performance and loveliness and the way she looks. And so the performance may not be there. She may not have a good attitude for the day. And therefore you're, you're mad, you're bitter, you're upset because love now is conditioned on her performance. Which means we're, we're brought back again to the whole model of what love is like following the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ and loving our wives as Christ loved the church. Brothers, are you bitter against your wife? Then that requires repentance on our part and to love them in a way that pleases God and seeks to serve them, to sacrifice voluntarily, to surrender in an appropriate way that the Bible calls us to surrender, and then to seek her in an appropriate and a biblical way, to seek her interest, her good in Christ by leading her with love. May the Lord bless us to so grow in our leadership so that the wife lovingly comes under that lead of love with her submission, and we lovingly lead her as Christ leads the church, which means repentance and growth and help and strength that we all need from the risen Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We know that your love is perfect. We know the love of Christ has no sin in it, has no imperfections, has no weaknesses. So we're not called to be Christ. We're not called to be the Messiah for our wives or the substitute or the Savior. We're called to love in a like manner. And so Lord, forgive us of the times where we have demanded respect and honor as if we needed that rather than uh, seeing marriage as a context of sanctification where we're asking questions. How do you want us to serve in this capacity, in an occasion where there may be problems or sins that are need to be noted. Why are you revealing this in marriage? What is it you want me to be and do so that I'm not irritated with your providence, but I see things in myself and my bride that you want corrected? How can I be a means of grace to my wife and leading with love rather than a means of bitterness and harshness and lead that is not after the pattern of Christ. So Lord, we acknowledge our weakness and our inability and how we need your Holy Spirit to love. And we pray, Father, not only for the marriages here, but for the young women and the young men that will be married one day, that they will shape their ideas after who Christ is and after Scripture, because all of us tend to bring in our own interest to marriage that produces problems and conflict. Help us to start seeing and knowing more the love of Christ in our own hearts, delighting in it, and then sharing that love not only in marriage, but in church, 
in singleness, and in all that we are. And may you be glorified and honored for the love you produce, for the love you create in us as we trust in Jesus, our all-satisfying Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen.